Luke 15, 11 through to 32. And he said, there was a younger man who had two sons. Uh, sorry, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and his father uh, and, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, a ring, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Oh, sorry, and he said to him, Son, all, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this for this your brother was dead and is alive, he was lost and is found. Well, as we dig into this story, we're going to look at the three characters that are in there, the father and the two sons. Um, but what we're going to be looking at specifically in terms of idolatry is the idol of comfort. The idol that believes that my happiness, my greatest happiness will be found when I just have nice stuff, nice feelings, things that make me feel good, things that make me comforted. I remember seeing a movie years ago called The Boat That Rocked, which was about like pirate radio. And um, the plot of the movie, which I'm um, told is you know, somewhat true, was that um, in the 50s, 60s, 60s I think it was, uh, there were, you weren't allowed to play certain songs on the radio, um, but that was what all the, the young people were into. And so these, these people started these pirate radio stations where they would broadcast all the music that everyone wanted to hear, but that wasn't allowed to be played on the radio. A bunch of those started getting shut down, and so um, groups started taking boats out to international waters that weren't that far off the coast, and then broadcasting back into England, because technically they couldn't be arrested. So they'd found a little loophole. Because they were broadcasting from international waters, they couldn't be arrested on those because there was no jurisdiction. So they could kind of get away with it. And the movie kind of like blows up that idea and adds character and flavor and all that to it. Um, but towards the end of the movie, 
it's all starting to get shut down. The police have sort of you know, rewritten laws and they're starting to work out how to shut down all these groups and these radio stations. And they realize it's all starting to fall apart. And then one of the characters toward the end called The Count, who's one of the hardest partying of the lot, because they've lived this like incredibly hedonistic lifestyle. It's boats, drugs, sex, rock and roll, like I- everything about that era. It's all happening on one boat. They call it, that's why it's you know, the boat that rocked. And it's all starting to come apart. And, um, and towards the end, the Count's reflecting with this young guy who's come along for the journey. And, um, and he says to him, he says, I realized something the other, the other week. And once I realized it, I couldn't put it out of my head because I realized that it was true. And he said, these are the best days of our life. And he meant that in the worst way possible. He meant it's over. The best days we're ever going to have on planet Earth are probably done. Because he knew that what was coming was the police were going to shut it down. That meant the end to all the parties, all the lifestyle, everything that came with it. And he knew that after that was going to mean a job and responsibilities and all these kind of things. And it kind of summarized the spirit of the age, but maybe the spirit that sort of traveled through the ages. And it's this, that there is a time to enjoy life. There's a sweet spot where you have maximum freedoms and minimum responsibilities. And it's about 18 to 24, but you can extend it out if you work hard enough. Um, But there's this little spot in life where your best days are, but somewhere looming in the future is adulthood. And it's going to come and it's going to crush everything. It's going to be the end of it all. You even see it, and there's a bunch of memes that float around on Facebook. I love memes. Um, but um, the, um, the one that kind of floats around a fair bit is this idea of, like, I can't even adult, right? Like, the idea of, like, um, it'll have a picture of, like, you know, a puppy with his face just mashed into a cake, and it's like, you know, how I feel trying to adult through life or whatever. Or, like, there'll be someone just, like, you know, doing gymnastics and then crashing out on the third backflip and breaking the neck, or it's like um, me trying to adult in 2017, right? The idea is there's this, this theme kind of running through them that, like, that life is kind of like it's just too difficult, right? It's too much, and, and it's kind of all, it's, it's over the top, and the idea of adulting is this, this hard thing that we all know we have to do at some point, but no one really wants to. And I wonder this, right, because memes, memes are observational humor, right? Most of them are kind of just little things about life that are funny because you're like, oh, someone else has observed that too, right? That's observational humor. You laugh at yourself because you're like, yeah, I do that too, and I didn't realize so many people did. And so it's an observation. That's what makes it funny. I wonder if those memes would be just as funny in Darfur. Would they be just as funny in Hyderabad? Would people in other parts of the world even get them? Or is it something that's unique to our culture? Because I suspect that it is. The idea, and I think this is right, I don't think I'm overreading it, I think that the sub-theme to these memes is the idea that life shouldn't be that hard. That actually the good life is a life kind of free from those stresses and responsibilities. Life should kind of be pretty easy going. And yet somehow it keeps coming back to bite us. See, I, I think that's the case. I think we're often surprised by how difficult life can be. I think we're easily overwhelmed. And the irony is that in our neck of the woods of the world, we are the ones who are more comfortable than anyone else. And yet for some reason, the meme that resonates is, life is so hard. Life is so difficult and overbearing. And I wonder if our inability to cope with life is, connected, is, is the work of an idol. Whether the idol of comfort has so taken hold of our hearts that even everyday life, everyday adulting, 
seems like it's a little bit beyond. But what we're going to see also in this is that there are two sons. There are two ways about going after the idol of comfort, and they look very different even though they're going after the same thing. And the irony is that one is likely to condemn the other for the exact same crime they're committing. And so we're going to see that as we dig into Luke 15. Pray with me as we start. Father God, we praise you that you are a holy God, that you alone will stand over humanity in judgment, and that in you alone is found salvation, that in you we find hope and joy and meaning because of the death of Jesus that has covered over our sin, the death of Jesus that has stood in the place and taken the punishment for our idolatry, for our worshipping of false gods. And so we pray, Father, that in doing this, that you would encourage your church, that you would build us up and help us to build up one another. Amen. Well, the story starts in a striking way. It starts with the younger son making a request of his father. In Luke 15, 11 to 12, uh, it says this, And he said, this is Jesus talking, he's giving a parable to explain to a group of people, says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. You can tell that this is a story that Jesus is telling and not a real-life actual event because of what happens. A son goes up to his father, says, give me my inheritance. That's obviously, I mean, it's offensive in our culture, but it's even more so in an ancient Near Eastern culture. You would never, ever, ever do this. Even in that part of the world now, you would never do this. Why? Because when do you get your inheritance? When you die. That's your right when, you, when your parents die. So to go up to his father and say, give me my inheritance now, is like saying, Dad, you're dead to me. I just want the money. Give me the money now. And the reason you can tell that this is a story is because in this story, the father does it. The son comes up to the father, says, give me my inheritance. And the father says, here you go. You know what would have really happened in that culture? He says there were two sons. The younger son went to the father and asked for his inheritance. Then there was one son. That's how the story would have flowed in the ancient Near East. Everyone listening, everyone listening to this story would have ex- been expecting that conclusion. It would have been a very short parable. And so Jesus is telling this and he's saying it in this way because he's trying to get their attention. So he's starting with a situation that would never happen. And so he says to them, uh, this is what then happens. The son gets his inheritance and Luke 15, 13 uh, says this. Not many days later, The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. This is where we see the idol of comfort. What does the son want? He wants stuff. He wants new stuff and better stuff. He wants things. He wants new experiences. He wants to travel to new places. He wants to spend money. So he says to his dad, divide up your inheritance, give me my bit. Then he takes what would have been a stack of cash, So that means his dad has divided the property, literally, physically, sold part of it in order to give the inheritance to the son. He's taken this pile of cash and he goes over to a foreign land and just goes crazy. And this this is a feature of the idol of comfort. The, the, The idol of comfort can wreak havoc quickly because it is so addictive. The desire for stuff and for new things and new experiences is destructive. It takes hold of our heart quickly, and when we indulge it, it brings ruin swiftly. And that's what it does here. He finds himself, he squanders everything that he has. See, the desire to stuff can be so addictive because it puts us in this cycle. 
you think about it even at the most basic level. You wake up in the morning, you just feel kind of off or a bit funny, and so you go to the shops and you buy something new. And funnily enough, you just feel a little bit better. And you look at all the stuff that you bought and then you feel kind of good. But then the next time when you wake up and you feel kind of funny and you go and buy stuff, you can't buy just a few things, you need to buy a bunch of things. And then more and then more and then more because in order to get that buzz, it takes more and more and more to do it. And this is what, this is what drug users would call chasing the dragon. The idea is that you're, tra- you're chasing something that, that, that's elusive and that really can't be found. Because the addictive cycle works like this. You, 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 you need a stimulus to make you feel good, but you need more and more and more and more and more of that thing in order to get the original feeling back. It's chasing the dragon. When, this, when it starts with, kind of, with drug use, it might be that the first time you smoke weed, after all the coughing and spluttering and pretending that you really enjoyed it, then the high sets in and you feel something that you've never, ever felt before. But then the next time or over a few months, it takes a little bit more and then more and then more. And then it kind of doesn't do what it used to do. So you drop, you drop other drugs over the top of that. And then they start to wear off. And then you need harder drugs. And this is what they call kind of escalation. That over time, you need more and more of the stimulus in order to just feel good. This is chasing the dragon. All physical sensation is subject to this kind of curve, like the law of diminishing returns. The, the more and more you have of something, it feels better and better, and then it peaks, and then it starts to get worse and worse and worse. And everything that, that involves feeling good has the same sort of thing. The kick that we get from food or from shopping or from entertainment and watching TV or whatever it is, is all subject to that law of diminishing returns. That over time, it feels less and less good and it takes more and more and more in order for us to feel good, in order for us to be comforted. And they say that the addictive cycle is complete when the thing that you use to make, to make you feel better both makes you feel better and feel worse. That's when the cycle is complete. When the addictor is both the help and the hurt. That's when it's complete. Think about it like this. With a simple example, say it's with study. You know you should be studying. That's a bad feeling. You feel stressed, you feel whatever. So you're like, you know what I should do? I should binge watch an entire season of something on Netflix. And you do. And then it's 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., a bit too late, or go to sleep. The next day you wake up, you're more stressed than you were because the deadline is closer, but no more work has been done. And so you're feeling more stressed than you were the day before. And so you're like, I really need to do something. Season two has just come out. I will binge watch this one as well. And the deadline gets closer. And then it, goes, it gets worse and worse and worse, right? As you start to feel worse, you need that thing to make you feel better. And then it makes you feel worse. In more serious instances, this is how it works with gambling. You gamble. And there's a thrill. There's a physical adrenaline that comes with gambling. And so you gamble, but then you lose money. And so you feel bad. If you've gambled a significant amount of money, you feel a significant amount of guilt. And then there are relational pressures on you as well. So you feel really bad, so you need to really gamble. And then there's the hope that you're going to be able to gamble out of it. So you put a lot of money down and lose it all. And then you feel worse, so then you gamble more. So you feel worse and you gamble more and so on and so on. And the addictive cycle just runs around in constant loops. It's the same with food. You feel down, you feel bad, so you eat something sweet or junky or whatever it is. Then after you've finished, you're like, what have I done? You feel bad about it, you feel guilty, 
that kind of sits for a while and then in order to get rid of that feeling we eat again and so on and so on this is the cycle that runs through with everything that we use to find physical comfort whether it's drug use whether it's pornography whether it's just buying stuff all of these things have to escalate because we need more and more and more of this thing in order to feel good and it wreaks devastation and this is what happens in the story I'm not given the details. All we're told is that the son wants stuff. He goes after comfort and it blows his life up and it's quick. The idol of comfort can wreak quick destruction. And in this guy's life, it does. And then we see what happens next. In Luke 15, 14 to 16, it says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this is, this is rock bottom. And this is a common experience for people who go after the idol of comfort, like the younger son, that your life completely bottoms out. Whether it's financial ruin, whether it's a near-death experience, whether it's just relational destruction, whether it's all of those things conspiring together to the point where your life is just a complete mess. The idol of comfort, like different to maybe how some of the others operate, can bring destruction swiftly. And in this one, it's in the humiliation of being a Jewish man feeding pigs. He's got no money. He's starving. He's got no friends. He's got nothing left. He has nothing. And he's sitting there in his humiliation. He's at absolute rock bottom. The idol of comfort can push people there that quickly because of the addictive cycle and the addictive nature of it. And we give our life over to a false God. As we looked at in Romans 1 in the last one, God gives us over to the desires of our heart and it brings destruction. But then the story takes a turn. And in Luke 15, he realizes something and acts on it. It says this, but when he came to himself. So again, it's, it's like that thing with the Isle of Comfort. It's almost in a, in a daze. You do things, you wake up and you're like, what have I just done? And he has this kind of moment of clarity. He wakes up and he's like, what am I doing here? He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So in his humiliation, he realizes I can't get any lower. Things can't get any worse. And you know what? I might as well go back to my father not to, he's not expecting relationship with his father. He's not, trying to, he's not still after the idol of comfort to where he's like, maybe if I just feel really bad for that, he'll let me back into my inheritance and I'll be a son again. He's just thinking practically. He's like, I'm, I'm going to die if I stay here in starvation. I'll go back to dad. At least I may be able to get a job and enough to pay for my food for the week. That's all I'm up for. And so he goes back to his dad, hat in hand, in full repentance. This isn't a manipulative thing. He said, look, I've destroyed my life completely. And he comes back to his father and he's expecting that maybe his dad might let him work as a slave amongst the rest of them. 
But instead, the father sees him from a long way off and runs to him. Now again, this is something that wouldn't have happened in the ancient Near East. Men, ancient, Near East and Middle Eastern men don't run. Children run. Kids run. They sit around and smoke. Right? That's what happens, right? And they ne- it's, it's, an, it's an indignity to run like a child. And yet the father is so pleased to see his son that he, he runs to him. And, and as his son starts his rehearsed speech that he was kind of practicing, you know, hoping to get most of the way through, his father interrupts him. He's got no interest in it. And he embraces him and kisses him and welcomes him back in. And he says to him, put a robe on him, which was probably his own. Put a ring on his finger, which also was probably his own. So after his son has squandered all of this, he's giving him more stuff. And he welcomes him in and he throws a party for him. But interestingly, for the son, when the son has finally given up on partying and on that lifestyle, the father throws him a party. That after all that, after having gone after it that hard, when he finally doesn't want it anymore, his father welcomes him in and throws him a party. He's restored to relationship. And if you know this story, you know that Jesus is saying that this is what it's like when a sinner comes back to God. That God embraces them and loves them and welcomes them back in. And Christ's forgiveness is enough to atone for all that they've done. And so restoration of relationship with God means laying aside this idol of comfort. And what he really wants is relationship with his father. And the story would be good and would be fine and would be complete if you finished there. And yet he doesn't. There's an older brother. And this is where it gets interesting. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings. It keeps finishing, right? It's like, how many endings are here? So, and stop crying, Frodo. Like, you, just, you were so tough in the books. You're just, you're embarrassing yourself. But, um, not that I'm that passionate about it or anything, but, um, but the story's finished. And then there's this whole new like, narrative. It's almost like almost half the text is in this part. Why is there this focus on this, this older brother that's hanging around? And so look at what he says. It says now, uh, it'll come up on the screen for you, 25 to 32. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Why is the older brother mad? He hears the sounds far off in the distance of a party going on at the house and he calls a servant to him and he says, what's going on in there? And the guy's like, your brother's come back. And this is normally the point in the movie where they celebrate and they run to the house, but he's not celebrating. He's furious. He can't believe it. He's like, what? This is going on? And he goes into the house to settle business and he goes straight up to his dad and he's like, what is going on here? And notice, he won't even call his brother his brother. He says, this son of yours. So he's not, he's not in, in any way connected to this guy who's come into the house. And he's saying, this son of yours, he squandered everything he had on, on prostitutes, on wild living, on multiple addictions, right? He blew his life up. He humiliated our whole family. He's ruined everything. And now you're going to welcome him back in? And the reason Pali is so furious is because if the brother is welcomed back in, 
guess what's going to happen when his father dies? The property is going to be divided evenly again, but there's less property now, isn't there? So this, the younger son has got away with it. He's spent all this stuff. He comes back, he still gets to have all this stuff. But the crazy thing here is, the older son has the same idol as the younger son. What does he want? He says to his dad, I served you, I slaved for you, and you didn't even give me a, a goat. He wanted the same things. The reason he's mad is, his younger brother did it better. He's furious because he's like, ah, oh, if I'd have known I could have got it by doing that, I would have done that. Like, I've been slaving away like an idiot, and now this guy gets everything and then more. Like, he feels like a fool. He wanted the same stuff. See, the, the, the younger son at the beginning wanted the father's stuff. He didn't want relationship with the father. And the older brother had the same issue. Have you noticed that? He doesn't call him, he doesn't relate to him as a son. He says, I was a slave to you. And I did these things because I thought you were going to give me stuff. We had an arrangement here and you've now gone and blown it up by, like, by passing it off to your younger son. You've restored him back. He's mad because he thought he was getting the way by working hard and now his brother's cheated and cut him out. See, the truth is, you might, the idol of comfort might be something in your life that you've given your heart over to many times. And you might have done it like the younger son. Or maybe that was your story before becoming a Christian. That was definitely mine. But the truth is, you may go after the Isle of Comfort like a younger son, or you might go after it like an older son. You might be an older brother, and you know that true happiness is going to be when you're comfortable and when you have nice stuff, but you know if you do it that way, you're going to lose it all. So you're just smarter. You're like, I know I've got to work a job. I know I've got to hold down responsibilities. But once I do, then I'll be rewarded. And this is what makes the older brother so mad. The, the younger brothers hack the system. The idea is you do the work, you do the stuff, and then you get the comforts, you get the nice life. But the, other bro the younger brothers kind of short-circuited it. And see, this is a feature of the idol of comfort. That if you're an older brother, and the idol of comfort is getting a hold of your heart, you'll be a jealous person. You'll always feel like other people have got it easier than you. How come they got this lifestyle with only this much effort? I work hard. A current affair is basically built on that, right? Is looking at all these people who get away with stuff. And it makes people mad because they're like, well, you got the idol the cheap way. I've had to miss out on things in order to do it. You'll be a jealous person. It burns you up just how comfortably other people are living. It burns you up constantly. Even many of the battles between millennials and baby boomers right now over housing prices is who got the best deal for cheapest? Who got away with it? Who cheated the game? The idol of comfort never asks the question, why do I have it better than so many people? It always asks the question, why do I have it worse than so many people? We have a family friend who is really, by all means, even within our wealthy context, insanely rich. But the feature of his life is how much he complains about how much money other people have and how easily they got it. He cannot stop talking about it to the point where it's socially inappropriate, where people are looking for exits from the conversation, right? People are thinking, how do I get, how do I, oh, he's on a roll again, how do I get out of this? And, you, and oftentimes you're kicking yourself because you said a trigger word or something, you mentioned a story in the news, you mentioned how, and then like all of a sudden like it's on, and you're like, oh man, like how do I, how do I stop him? Yeah. But for him, it's insane, like he'd be richer than most Australians who are in turn richer than 97% of the world, so he's in the very highest bracket, but the only question that plagues his mind that keeps him up at night is, why do other people have it easier? Why did they inherit more? 
Why did they get away with it? It's the sure sign of an idol that you lose all perspective. You never ask the question, why do so many people have it worse than me? How do I use my stuff to help them? It's always, why do people get get away with so much? That's how the older brother goes after him. It might be questions like, why do other people have it better than me? Why can't my life be like that? Why can't my family life be that easy? Why can't my marriage be that easy? Why can't my kids be that easy? Why can't my job be that easy? Why can't my life be that easy? Why do other people have it better than me? That's what makes the, the older brother mad. He's in a rage because his brother's got away with it. He got away with it easy. And because of this, older brothers will struggle to be generous because the belief is, I work so that I have comforts. I work so that I have comforts. I should be comfortable because I've worked hard and I've done my bit. And you'll be stingy in all, in all areas of life. You'll be stingy relationally. Because you'll be like, look, I work hard so that I can have free time on my nights and weekends. And so you won't involve yourself with many people because people will take up time. They blow things up. They call it inconvenient times. They have inconvenient needs. They're just they're a pain, right? So you shrink your life down to relationally convenient relationships. That's how the older brother works. His life might not be a mess like his younger brothers. He'll keep his ducks all in a row but you'll keep things tidy and controlled so that you've got enough time to be comfortable. You'll be relationally stingy. I mean, every few weeks, there's, there's an article in the paper about cutting out of your life toxic relationships. Now, there is a, a time and a place for that. You know, for, for, for the younger brother going after the idol of comfort, yeah, cut off, cut off your ties with your dealer. He doesn't, he's not your friend. You know, that's a toxic relationship. That's not what the Sydney Morning Herald is talking about. It's talking about people who are difficult, or who are a strain or a drain or that kind of thing, the bar is quite low for what a toxic relationship is. Right? You, you're cutting all kinds of people out of your life at that point. You'll be relationally stingy. You won't put yourself in the kind of situations that will get you involved with people who are going to be a drain or cut into your comforts or your comfortable time. You'll keep clear of the younger brothers around you especially because they are a drain in every sense. You'll be stingy with your relationships. You'll be financially stingy. Notice that's the first thing the older brother is concerned about. He's like, what about the money, dad? He doesn't care that his son, for his dad, he was like, man, my son might be dead. And then he realizes he's alive and it blows his mind. The older brother is like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. It's good. He survived. Well done. But money, dad. Like, have you thought about the financial cost of bringing this guy back into the house? He can't believe it. It will lead you to be financially stingy. Because you want to maximize your comfort by maximizing your spending on things that make you feel good. I've earned this money, I had to work hard for it, now I want to spend it on the things that make me feel good, that make me feel nice. Older brothers keep a tighter control on their finances than younger brothers, but they want the same thing. They just know the shortest way to it is to work hard and then spend on it. You'll be materially stingy. With the stuff that you actually own, you'll be disinclined to lend it out. Because you'll be like, look, I've earned, I worked hard at a job that I don't particularly want to do. See, for someone who's idle is power, they don't mind working all the time. In fact, they, you can't keep them away from work. They get addicted to work. But if what you really want is comfort, work is a means to an end. So you trim back your work hours as much as possible to maximize your comfort on the other side. And there's some kind of, there's a sweet spot in the middle where you can minimize work and maximize comforts. And so you'll have this stuff because you've worked hard at a job that maybe you wish you didn't have to do, but it's part of the deal. 
And so when you have stuff, you don't want to lend it out to people because they ruin it. They wreck stuff. It doesn't get returned on time or at all. And so you kind of you keep your stuff to yourself. You'll accumulate a lot of it. There'll be plenty of it, but it won't go out to other people. And you'll need a lot of free time. Because if comfort is your idol, time with other people is difficult. Time by myself is time that I can control, where I decide what I want to do, my priorities I get to set. If I feel like doing this, I do it. If I don't, I don't. And so you'll need a lot of free time just to cope with the job that maybe you don't particularly like doing. And there won't be much margin on either side of that for anything else or anyone else. But this is the thing. In the story, in this story, there's no crash for the older brother. The younger brother, you see what happens. If you give your life wholly over to the idol of comfort and just go for pure hedonism, it's usually the case that life crashes out pretty fast. If you're an older brother, you can keep it together. You can keep it together for a long time. But I've observed one, one area of life in particular where there is a crash and where it's crashing down hard in our culture. There is one thing that will blow everything up for the older brother who, who worships comfort. It's kids. Kids will do it. They will do it. They are the crash. Older brothers are too smart to hit financial ruin by themselves, but kids will get you, right? I was, I was in a cafe the other day. I was just overhearing a conversation. There was a, the waitress was speaking to like a guy who's just sitting there doing some work on his computer. And um, uh, yeah, she started by, so he must have been a regular because she said, how's the bub? And he was like, yeah, good. And she said something like, um, oh, my mum says if I ever had a kid, you know, if I had a kid right now that, um, so she must have been in a relationship or whatever, but she's like, if I had a kid right now um, that I should do it, she'd, she'd be there, she'd, you know, help out with it, all that kind of stuff. And he just went, oh. And he's like, yeah, they say that. But then, <laughs> he says, they say that. But then, you know, my mom's just gone off on a world trip because she's like, I want to do it before she's too old to enjoy it anyway. And so she's not around to look after the kids or whatever. And I was like, wow, this is intergenerational older brother comfort idolatry clash, right? Where like, he's annoyed at his parents for wanting to be more comfortable because they're not around to make his life more comfortable. Like, and he's mad about it. Um, but... Then she, then she said, yeah, but I think I'm going to travel for like the next few years, maybe the next sort of 12 years or whatever. It's like, it's not, a <laughs> life doesn't go forever, but it's all right. You know? <clears throat> and he was, like, he was like, yeah, and he was like, yeah, do it. Make sure you do it. Because this is the idea, right? Is that you're like, if you worship the idol of comfort, you, uh, it makes you relationally stingy, makes you financially stingy, makes you materially stingy, makes you stingy with your free time. Guess what kids take all of? All of them. They're all gone. All gone. Your free time, it's gone. I didn't even know sleep time was free time. It is, and it's gone, right? They interrupted all periods. They, they have no sense of your levels of comfort. They invade all the time. They make weird demands. They, even, they don't even know if they want them fulfilled or not, right? They just they charge through, and they cause chaos, right? Financially, they make you super vulnerable, right? They, 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 inconveniently, they have all these medical emergencies, you have to pay thousands of dollars for, and you're like, thanks for nothing, right? And at the end of it, you're just back to where you started anyway. This is base level healthy kid. So they don't even get any, they, they can't even like, they can't even put some mods on them to make them a bit better. They blow you up relationally because they are the most inconvenient relationship you will have. Um, they blow you up uh, in terms of your material stuff. They ruin everything. We you know, back when we were just a, a couple, you know, double income, no kids, we had a record player. Bye. 
right? It was gone. Just put, scratching records. Just, we had to give it away because it was over, right? And you, and you find yourself saying cliches like, this is why we can't have nice things, right? <laughs> you just buy crappy stuff. But this is the crash. And if you don't think idols are serious, the idol of comfort, maybe more than even the idol of power, is leading to a hatred of children in our culture. Kids are seen as your enemy. Why? Because idols depersonalize people. And you start to see people in terms of who will give me my idol and who will take my idol. And kids take that idol. And you realize, I want that. I wanted that. And you are taking that from me. And it's almost like parents find themselves in this relationship where you're like, you're starting to relate to your kids like they're your enemy. Like they're out to get you. But it's insane when you step back from it. And yet, when you see what idolatry does... That's how, it's how you treat people. You don't see them as people. Just little kids who need love and care and attention and that it's a privilege that God would put me in this position to love and care for them. Instead, you see inconvenience. You see financial loss, material loss. You see you are ruining everything and taking everything away. As we've read through the Old Testament over the year, we've seen that in the Old Testament, God condemns the nations around Israel because they would kill children for the, on the altars of their idols. And if we believe that our culture is any different, 90,000 kids are aborted every year, and the main reason, the main reason is the impact that it will have on my life. Idols are not to be trifled with. The idol of comfort is leading to a hatred of kids in our culture because they will take it all away. We can't toy with idolatry. Our, our hearts are prone to wander to worship the creation over the creator. And when we say, I need nice things, and life needs to be easy and comfortable for me, it will put us in enmity with the rest of humanity. It's no joke. And here's the problem. When we see the depth of our love for comfort, when we see the depth of it, we think, how do we get out of this? And one temptation is the idol swap. And this is often the one that what happens is through your, your 20s, uh, oftentimes, comfort is, is available in, in abundance. But after a while, responsibility kicks in, and so people just swap one for the other. You go, well, look, the time for the idol of comfort is over. I guess now it's time for, uh, I'm going to be a somebody at work, and I'll, I'll go for power. Or, or you go the other way and go, I, I just want to get control of my life. I'm going to space out the kids and all this kind of stuff. I know I've got to do it, but this is how it will happen. And instead of dealing with it head on, we just swap it out for another idol. Well, what's the answer from this passage? The answer is a restored relationship with the Father. That it's only when we're in right relationship with God, as we're restored in the gospel, that we see, I don't need comfort so much. I don't need worldly comforts. Life doesn't have to be that easy in order for me to survive. That actually I have everything I need in God. See, when the son is brought back in a relationship, the younger son, notice that the older son doesn't. He never restores relationship with the Father. And there's a warning there that one of those idols, because it brings such havoc, is more likely to lead you to repentance than the other. But for the older brother, he never repents. The younger brother comes to see the father as the relationship he needed to be restored to. The material stuff doesn't matter anymore. This thing with my relationship with my dad being restored just overwhelms all of that. And this is the truth, that unless we understand how much we have in Jesus, how much we have in God himself, we will always wander to the idol of comfort. And because in our culture, you can actually have it. And in many, you can't. 
It's only the gospel that will teach us to say no and to set aside the idol of comfort. Listen to what J.I. Packer says uh, about how deep we should understand our relationship with the Father to be. It says, You sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for our God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Unless you think deeply on the gospel and how it is that God adopted you in, that it was costly, he couldn't just do it and overlook sin, that sin had to be dealt with by the blood of Jesus, but that that wasn't the end point. Forgiveness is not the ultimate reward of the gospel. The relationship with the Father is. That forgiveness in the end is a means to an end. He had to deal with sin in order to bring us in as sons and daughters of God. It had to be dealt with so that the greater thing could be done. And unless we see this, we will always feel like we're missing out. Unless we see the enormity of the gospel and how much Christ has done in welcoming us into the relationship with the Father, we will always think, yeah, surely I need something else as well. It will always be the Father and. And really what the and is, is what we really want anyway. Unless we understand the gospel clearly, we will always be tempted to go after the idol of comfort. And once we get this, and we see that missing out is not missing out at all, that Christ will actually call you to miss out on all kinds of comforts for the sake of the gospel. That again, like with the idol of power, unless you ignore large amounts of text in the Bible, you cannot get around the fact that following Christ means missing out. It absolutely, 100% does. It's almost central to the call of discipleship. When Jesus calls the disciples, the first thing he tells them, he's like, you, t- you, you, you take up your cross and follow me. Consider yourself dead. Consider yourself as lost everything, as lost to the world completely. He says, if you want to save your life, lose it. It's central. But if we understand how much we have in a relationship with the Father, how much we have in being adopted in, we'll see that missing out is not missing out. That actually He's not calling us to miss out on anything, that He's calling us to gain everything. See, it will mean that we'll see relationships differently. Relationship is not about personal comfort. We'll see what Jesus means when He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Put yourself in, in, in difficult relationships, ones that, that do make demands on your comforts that are burdensome. I mean, of course, there's wisdom in, in, in limitations on that. But really, the call to love is the call to miss out. To love one thing or one person is to not love something or, one, or another person. That didn't quite come out right, but you get the idea, right? It means inconveniencing yourself. I mean, being part of a church community is inconvenient. And the relationships that come with that are incredibly inconvenient. Because you didn't choose any of these people. If you understand the gospel, God did. And He's calling us into these relationships and they're difficult. But it's only when we understand how much we have in the Father that we see, I'm not missing out to love these people. That actually, if Christ gained by loving and pouring Himself out for others, that's where joy is found. 
that comfort will not bring me ultimate joy. In fact, it continually, and we have evidence for it, everyone in all of our lives has seen it again and again and again, comforts let us down. We need more and more of them. It's, it's, it's evident beyond evident. But what we fail to believe is that it's worth it to follow Christ, that we find joy in laying down our lives to love other people. If you're a younger brother, this might mean that you need to get your stuff together. You need to get your act together in order to love people. If your life is such a hot mess that you're, just, you're off the map all the time, you just you dip in and dip out like wherever it is, it might mean getting your stuff together and getting a bit more organized so that, not so you can get life under control, which is the idol we'll talk about tomorrow, but so that you might be able to love people properly. So you might be able to be present. That You might persist with people past the point when the relationship is actually bringing returns. It might mean if you're an older brother, you need to start cutting into the free time that you've organized so carefully and start inconveniencing yourself with people. And even if you are organized, to organize right, as a plan my weeks, how am I going to plan to love other people like Christ has loved me? For parenting, it's going to mean not resenting your kids. They are inconvenient and demanding and sinful because they're your kids. <laughs> you made them. I made them. That's where they learn. I discipled them in the ways of sinfulness and selfishness. It's all me, right? It's just a mirror. And you can get in this endless cycle of resentment and think of all the things that you miss out on. And I'll tell you now, if you are, if you are here, single, dating, wherever you're at, and you plan, if it's God's will, to have kids in the future, do yourself a favor and kill the idol of comfort as much as you can before you get there. That is the best preparation you can have to live a life Loving Jesus and pouring yourself out for people before you get there is the best preparation to get there. Because I'm telling you, people are, are not ready for the shock. In our culture, in other cultures, it's, you know, it's a bit of an upward curve. In ours, it's like this and then this, right? We just, it's a, a brick wall and it just it smashes people. But if you are a parent, know that you're not missing out. To, to be the person in their life whom God has appointed to show the love of Christ to them is not missing out. That is a blessing and an honor and a gift. And it's hard to see it that way at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. But that is what it is. That's what God has called us to. When it comes to money, if you're a younger brother, you might need to actually start a budget. You might need to actually start getting a handle on your finances so that you can actually spend them on the things you want to spend it on. Because the default will always be me. Who's got the money? You do. Where's it going to go? It's going to go on you. And so getting a budget might be a way of saying, I, I don't want to do that. I know that's not where joy is found, so I need to actually get ahead of it. For an older brother, you might have control of your finances, but you need to set aside a larger portion for generosity. I mean, the fact that at church, at the moment, all of us who are members said we would give financially to the church, but only 60% give is probably a sign that the idol of comfort is at work somewhere. That we actually aren't being generous in those ways. We have opportunities to give generously to one another, to organizations, to the work that's happening here at church. Being, being generous is the opposite of worship, is, will take away the idol of comfort. And lastly, mission. Mission is the ultimate, because it costs in all of those areas, doesn't it? I remember talking to someone from a missions organization, and they said that their focus in terms of recruiting for overseas missions is to take people from developing countries, train them up as missionaries to send them to other developing countries because the base level of comfort that Western missionaries expect is too high to be useful in most contexts. 
that the shock level is too great, that we, the, the way that we live and, the, and what we expect, even without meaning to, is so far above world standards that when we enter another context, most of our time and energy is spent just coping and no mission gets to happen. They recruit far more successfully from developing nations. Mission means missing out on stuff. Mission means losing stuff. Mission means losing finances. means your stuff getting used and mucked up. It means inconveniencing yourself. It means all of those things. And yet, if the gospel is true, it means missing out on nothing. That when Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. And if you want to lose it, you'll save it. He means that we're not going to miss out on any joy following him. It's not a, he's not a hard taskmaster. We're not going to miss out on joy, but we will miss out on the idol of comfort most definitely. See, when we understand the gospel rightly, we see that God is calling us to a greater joy and not to less. It is a hard reality. And it means us thinking deeply in the gospel and encouraging one another in this. And so as I finish and as I wrap up here, I want you to consider how you might be praying and thinking through this this weekend. That again, as we go talk after talk, hitting idol after idol, we don't walk away having heard some interesting talks or ideas from the scriptures, but that the Spirit would use that to transform us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are good and holy, that you are too good to leave us in the hands of idols, that you will not let us worship that which should not be worshipped, that isn't worthy of worship. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us and draw us away from the idol of comfort. That you would lead us to a deeper understanding of you. That we would know you and love you with all our heart and know that to follow you is to miss out on nothing. But that we might encourage one another in this day by day by day. And Father, we pray all of this, that you might be glorified in your church. Amen.